Did we just lose the fucking Canucks? No, 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 no. You're listening to Halford and Bruff. Yeah, I, I thought we uh, came out uh, really flat here today. Uh, we weren't ready to play. Try to build them up. You told them how good they played in Calgary, and we did an awful lot of good things. And then we come here, and it's not even the same team. So it's hard to understand sometimes. Stanford band nowhere in sight. Uh-oh, it's picked off. Uh-oh, oh no. Unbelievable. Oh, wow. Incredible. Chandler Jones takes it in. What a freaking boost. Good morning, Vancouver. 601 on a Monday. Cold, cold Monday. It is Halford. It is Brough. It is Sportsnet 650. We are coming to you live from the Kintech Studios in beautiful Fairview Slopes in Vancouver. Jason, good morning. Good morning. A-Dog, good morning to you. Good morning. Laddie, good morning to you as well. Hello, hello. Halford and Brough of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura Dealers. Experience a Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. I mentioned we are coming to you live from the toasty, warm Kintech Studios. Jason, Tell them more about Kintech. Oh, toasty warm Kintech. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. We have an absolutely massive show today on the Halbro Experience on Sportsnet 650. Can we just take a moment to truly appreciate the sporting weekend that we just experienced? Okay. Can I just tell you that there are very few times that I come in here at 6 o'clock in the morning and I'm like, all right. Excitement. Usually I'm tired. But today. Did you just tell all the listeners that normally you come in for the show and you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I got to do this again. Loathing my existence. Right. Loathing it. But today. Normally you hate the show. 10% less loathing. Seriously, though. Just think about what happened on the weekend. Sunday alone, Mm -hmm. we had maybe... I can't even believe I'm saying this out loud because it sounds stupid, but it's true. The greatest soccer game ever. (laughs) Ever played. Ever played. History of the sport, that might have been it. But then after that, we had maybe the craziest finish in NFL history. Mm -hmm. And if that wasn't enough, the day prior... We had that Canucks game. (sighs) Well, we did have a lot of news and notes and rumblings and rumors (laughs) about the local (laughs) hockey squadron. And then before that... We had the biggest comeback in NFL history. All that happened in 48 hours. Do you think Matty Ice is like, you know what? I don't like big leads no, anymore. No, it's, it's not my thing. <laughs> I don't like them. They're hard to protect. Sometimes they get frittered away. But anyway, look, all my notes it was, are... It was an awesome sports weekend. My notes are literally, dear God, what a weekend. And what a weekend it was. So we are going to recap it today. With a very good lineup of guests, 6.30, James Sharman, Sportsnet football analyst, is going to join us. Uh, three guesses about what we're going to talk about. The bronze medal game yeah. between Croatia and Morocco. Gareth gonna... Southgate, uh, what's next for him? Well, FIFA, you know, England did win the FIFA Fair Play Award See, at the World Cup. That's disappointing. That's like, I, I don't want that. I don't, that's like the Lady Bing trophy. It is. The, for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, that's the yeah. Lady Bing. You got the fewest penalties. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Here's your trophy. Uh, so 6.30, James Sharman. Uh, we will talk about just a, an unbelievable, unbelievable World Cup final. They could not have scripted it. Anybody. The Qatari government could not have written a better script for that. It was impressive. So 6.30, James Sharman is going to join us to talk about everything that happened uh, yesterday at the World Cup final in Qatar. 7 o'clock, Mike Tannier. Our NFL insider from Football Outsiders. I still don't really know exactly how the end of the Patriots-Raiders game happened. I mean, I saw it mm-hmm. over and over and over again. It still defies logic what happened there. So we'll talk to Mike about that and everything else that went on in the NFL. And then at 8 o'clock, IMAX going to join us. And I know you mentioned that enthralling Canucks match on the weekend. A 5-1 loss to the Winnipeg Jets at home. Another 5-1 loss at home. Yeah, that's right. But uh, we'll talk to IMAX about... Really, everything that happened off the ice, because there were a lot of rumblings and rumors that went on during and after. Sorry, not I was part of the broadcast, but in the middle and at the end of the Hockey Night Canada broadcast. Patrick Alvin said so much. He just just full of information, that guy. He was just bursting at the seams of details and things mm-hmm. and what have you. So 8 o'clock, IMAX, 7 o'clock, Mike Tannier, 6.30, James Sharman. Uh, the Canucks are in action tonight, once again at home. 
against the St. Louis Blues. Note the start time, 7.30. We are giving away not one, but two, two pairs of tickets. Please wear a jacket if you go to the game. It's cold. That is responsible broadcasting right there. Okay, <laughs> It's cold. Wear a jacket. Uh, Monday Night Football Rams Packers. Uh, World Junior Exhibition play gets underway today. Canada is going to take on Switzerland in WJC exhibition action. There's a bunch of other NHL games, a bunch of NBA games. It's a great time of the year for sports. So we are going to do our thing, and we're going to try, try to recap and tell you what happened. Hey, did you guys see the game last night? No. What happened? I missed all the action because I was... We know how busy your life can be. What happened? Missed that? You missed that? What happened? They have been playing the World Cup for 92 years. And on Sunday, it was the greatest game that FIFA and that tournament have ever produced. So can we go back and just kind of recap how the game went absolutely it won't be the most professional recap but that's kind of what you get on the Halford and Bruff show on Sportsnet 650 we can do it pretty quickly so we're all so we all woke up um early on on a Sunday and uh for 80 minutes of the game it looked like Argentina was gonna win fairly comfortably and Messi who scored uh would be crowned as the greatest ever it would be exciting, um, but looking back on the game, you, you'd wonder, hey, maybe France had been affected by that virus that was running through their team. Maybe they, maybe they just didn't have it on that day. And tip of the cap to old Argentina, who wins, uh, you know, another World Cup to add to uh, their collection. And then Mbappe happened, mm-hmm. scoring two quick goals in the 80th. And 81st. So yep. not only did they get on the board, they tied it. And we were in for an incredible ride after that. Messi had an incredible chance to win it in um, in stoppage time. But the French keeper made a great, great save. So to extra time we went, mm-hmm. where Messi scored in the 108th minute and looked to have not only won the game for Argentina... But he also regained the golden boot yes. as the tournament's leading scorer. And then Mbappe happened again. This time on a PK after Argentina was called for handball. And I just want to say, at that point in the game, um, when that PK was given, mm-hmm. there almost wasn't a... like. Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. Because everyone was still so shocked by what had already happened. Mm-hmm. So Mbappe regains the golden boot and the match is once again up for grabs. All the while, again, we couldn't really believe what was happening. Not only was this a World Cup final, the stakes also seemed to include Messi's legacy. Yep. After France nearly won it at the death. Well done. And that, again, was like another ho-hum moment in some ways, right? You're like, wow, yeah, the Argentinian keeper made an incredible save there, but we're kind of used to this by now. This is crazy what's going on. Um, We went to penalties because, of course, we went to penalties where both Messi and Mbappe stepped up to score. So that's uh, four total goals for Mbappe. Yeah, the hat trick in the actual game and then scores another in penalties. Uh, Now, eventually, France did falter in penalties and Messi finally had his World Cup celebration, which included not the golden boot because that went to Mbappe, but he was named the tournament's best player, so the golden ball. Uh, I loved the line by Peter Drury during the celebration. Mm -hmm. Lionel Messi has shaken hands with paradise. I did that once at the bar, but uh, it was after a lot of drinks. Right. Are you paradise? Nice to meet you, pal. Um, oh, it that was, was a she. <laughs> Welcome to the bar, honey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Freshen your drink, I'm not. Um, I will say this. Very rarely, almost never, do um, championship matches continually exceed your expectations to the point where you stop having them all together during the match. You, like you said, when Mbappe scored 
the penalty to make it 3-3 in extra time, it was almost like you were so overwhelmed mm-hmm. with dramatic moments. You know, I almost took it for granted. And the, re- to be the reason I was why like, I... just give me more. Give me another dramatic turn. The reason I say that is they panned a certain segment of the French crowd mm-hmm. and they weren't going nuts. Like they weren't celebrating in a big way. They almost looked shell shocked. Yeah. Put it this way the game had so much drama and emphasis to it that you almost were always waiting for something else to uh, like either unfold or develop. Like if that match, the funny thing is, is that for um, as as much drama and as profound that penalties had been in this tournament, I saw a lot of people quite accurately pointing out they're like, for this game only, just let them keep playing because someone will score eventually. Because yeah. that's how the, the match was ending up. It was just tri- like it's it was fascinating to watch. And I think a lot of this has to do with the the implementation of the five subs. Is that you just really give so much more energy to a side. They were just exchanging opportunities back and forth. And the Martinez save at the end of extra time on Colomani, it was unbelievable to watch play out. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Most people on the West Coast were probably tired and bleary-eyed and mm-hmm. didn't get a lot of sleep. And even that, even with that backdrop, this was honestly one of the most incredible sporting things that I'd ever watched. I mean, we're old. We've done this for a long time now. We don't get excited about an awful lot. Because we've seen everything kind of play. I've never seen anything like this before in my life. So never. We're going to talk about this with uh, James Sharman, but I'll I'll just throw it out to the listeners. Was that the greatest soccer match in history? Was it the greatest soccer match that you've ever watched? I I don't. Uh, I haven't watched enough soccer to answer that question confidently. Um, but given the stakes and the twists and the turns and the superstars involved. Um, I, it's got to be in the conversation. Like I, I look back at some of the great soccer finishes that I personally mm-hmm. have watched, and I was thinking about Manchester United in stoppage over Bayern in the 1999 Champions League. They scored twice in stoppage there. Uh, yeah. Liverpool coming back from 3-0 uh, to Milan in the 2005 Champions League final. Both Champions League finals. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure those match up to what we saw Sunday. So, so listen, we got a really jam-packed show, so we're going to talk more of the World Cup with James Sharman in about 15 minutes. So uh, to all the soccer fans out there that want to talk more about this uh, World Cup final, we will, but... We also have to balance that with being the home of the Canucks. Those and guys. The Vancouver Canucks had another brutal Saturday performance at home, and it had all the uh, post-game favorites, including Bruce Boudreaux, a confused Bruce Boudreaux. How many times? Honestly, how, that's a question that one of the beat reporters should ask for Bruce Boudreaux. How many times afterwards, Laddie, do we have the audio? Can you cue up that audio? Because you used it in the intro. How many times... Have we heard Bruce Boudreaux, the head coach of the team, go, I don't understand the performance that we just gave. We played well the other day, or you'd think we'd be up for this moment, and yet here's what he had to say after a 5-1 loss to Winnipeg on Saturday. It's more frustrating watching our team sometimes when you can go from great to what whatever tonight was. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I thought and you try to build them up, you told them how good they played in Calgary, and we did an awful lot of good things. And then we come here, and it's not even the same team. So it's hard to understand sometimes. It is hard to understand, Bruce. It's almost like maybe they're not a very good team. It was their fourth 5-1 loss at home this season. That's my favorite stat, by the way. Um, yeah, that's incredible. They have it's. They've actually got their fair share of five one. What are you laughing too. at? Right at the halfway point. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's not what home loss was the worst. It's what five one home loss was the worst. And there's of the four first candidates. There's one that doesn't even get on the podium. It's unbelievable. Can, really, can you actually add it up, uh, Laddie? If you if you've got time right 20 now, twenty to four. No, 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 no. You 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 idiot. Oh. Uh, don't anticipate what I'm going to ask. How many times have their games finished five one? Because they've won 5-1 two or three times it's as well. It's their favorite score. They their love fa- it. it is their favorite score because it means the fans don't get much excitement. Um, I, I'm also going to use a word that we've used probably way too much, but juxtaposition because it was the juxtaposition of the way the Jets played mm-hmm. um, that I think showed what the Canucks do not have. Now, remember, the Jets 
their offseason mirrored that of the Vancouver Canucks in a lot of ways. A lot of people expected big changes to the roster after a disappointing season. Mm-hmm. And yet there weren't big changes. Right. They're relatively the same group as last season, except they brought in a new coach. And they've decided to play with structure and discipline. They also stripped the captaincy up, Blake Wheeler. Maybe that was the key. <laughs> they made it easy on their goalie. <laughs> Connor Hellebuck, after the game, was like, yeah, I, I, I'm going to give all my credit to my teammates. And he also used this word, details. Yeah, We've just been so uh, focused on our details this, system, this, this season. I, I have to imagine that has a lot to do with Rick Bonus being the new head coach. Meanwhile, we know what this management group has said about the Canucks' detail and their structure. And, hey, you know, you watch them play, and you're absolutely right. The Jets made it very difficult for the Canucks to get through the ice and attack, and thusly, they made it easy on their goalie, Connor Hellebuck, who made a fair amount of saves, but how many of them were all that difficult? Well, I'd also like to point out when you talk about comparing the teams, and I made sure to put this right at the top of the notes. It was, it was. I thought it was very clever. Whoever wrote the gamer for NHL.com also added this right at the top. That yes, the Canucks were without leading scorer Elias Pettersson. Also, the Winnipeg Jets were without Blake Wheeler and Nate Schmidt. Right, like for anyone that was going to try and hang that on, well, there were Canucks were without Petey, and he's the the catalyst of the team and the leading scorer. The Jets came in undermanned as well due to injury. In fact, they probably actually had collectively more of a loss given how much both guys play, and they still found a way. And you know why they found a way? It's because when you're banged up or when you don't have your A game or you don't have your best players available, you can always fall back on structure and details and knowing what to do in certain moments. You can Mm -hmm. plug guys into the lineup, and you can be like, this is the way that we play, and this is the way that we do things. So go and do these things, and you'll make life easier on Connor back in net. And we'll have a good chance of winning. Lo and behold, they did. So, all honestly, you can almost throw the game onto the pile with the rest of the games. Yeah, it looked different, and the opponent was different, and the lineup for the Canucks was different. I know Besser wasn't in the lineup either. But the reality of it is, is it was, here we go again, play the greatest hits, or in this case, the greatest misses, and suffer another 5-1 loss at home. The real fireworks on the weekend had to do with the broadcast, oddly enough, because Fridge came, came on the, the prior to the game, yeah. and then Patrick Alvin bookended it with his interview, right? Well, let's play the Fridge audio now, um, because this is the audio that we had uh, coming into the, the game, and it might have been the most exciting thing of, of all. Not exciting, but it, w- it created some buzz. Uh, the game was... You know, just we've seen this this performance from the Canucks before, and too often we've seen it at Rogers Arena. And there was another jersey on the ice, and the Canucks mm-hmm. got booed off the ice after the end of it. I mean, I was happy for the Jets fans that were there. At least they got to see their team perform well. Yep, and perform with some uh, perform with some discipline and structure and some professionalism. Um, here was Elliot Freeman, and this is going to carry the conversation a lot today, uh, especially when we talk to IMAC. At 8 o'clock, we're kind of going to be bouncing around a little bit to soccer and hockey and a little bit of NFL with Mike Tannier. But here's what Elliot Friedman had to say before the Canucks even got to start their dismal performance against the Winnipeg Jets. I think one of the questions we're all trying to figure out is, what are the Vancouver Canucks up to? What is their goal here with some of the conversations they're having around the league? And here's the best I can give you. Number one, they're not interested in a rebuild or a teardown, but they are interested in changing their mix and breathing some new life into the team. They have indicated that they have one untouchable, and that is Pedersen. Now, I know what everybody's going to start to say. What does that mean about Quinn Hughes? And what I was told is that the Canucks have said it would take an absolutely mammoth offer. This is not something they're looking to do. It would take a mammoth offer for them to part way with the tremendous young defenseman. And just the other thing, Bo Horvat, we've all been wondering this week about what his future is. The best I can sense, Ron, is that, and Jeff, is that mm-hmm. JT Miller's contract is worth $56 million. I just don't think they want to go over that for Horvat and his year has put him over that. 
So lots to chew on from that. Um, they're not interested in a rebuild or a teardown. They're just and, building, Jason. They're just building. And yet there's only one untouchable, and that is Elias Pettersson. Here's the big question that I have, and I feel like it's been the big question for a long time. Mm-hmm. Here in Vancouver, when it comes to this Canucks team, do the Canucks have an actual plan? Right. And Two if questions. simply getting incrementally better year after year or minute after minute or brick after brick or step after step, if that can actually be called a plan, like our plan is to just get better every day, like a human being trying to be better yep. than the day before. Mm-hmm then can it actually work? Or without a more intricate plan, without a plan maybe to get worse before you get better, Sure. will it doom the Canucks to mediocrity at best? Now, I will just throw it out there that Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford came from a franchise that have won multiple Stanley Cups. How did they do that? Well, look at the superstars that have played in Pittsburgh. Mario Lemieux was the first overall pick, and the Penguins got him when they were terrible. Sidney Crosby was the first overall pick, and the Penguins got him when they were terrible. Mm-hmm. They also got Malkin and Flurry. What was, Mal- uh, what was Malkin second overall, and Flurry was first overall, right? Yep. And Yarmir Yager was in there. And they didn't get him because they were amazing. Mm-hmm. Just throwing it out there. Yeah. No, I, I, I get what you're saying. I, it, here's the problem with everything that happened on Saturday as it pertains to the questions that you're asking. You want to know, do the Canucks have a plan? Right? That's plain and simple. It's like, and, if the, and if you do have a plan, what is it? Is it literally like we just want to get better? Which is, you know, something that life coaches say. Just try and get better every day. Try and get better every day. <laughs> Um, so Alvin goes on Hockey Night in Canada in the aftermath, and the stage was already set where I, I mean, I felt it. Even though I wouldn't even watch a game. I was following it on my phone because I was out that night, but I was like, another one of these. It's mm. going to be another one where an executive has to go after a gross loss at home, <laughs> and the mood and the tenor is raw, and Cheech is trying to keep it light. <laughs> He's like, ah, here's a hockey card from when you played at Lexans. And then it was... Yeah. Alvin gave him nothing. First and foremost, the number one response, and I know all of you had the same response as well, is he gave him nothing, and he, was tr- he wasn't standoffish, but he said a lot without saying anything. And I think that's by design. I think that's his personality, the Johnny Tight Lips thing and everything. Do you think the Canucks have a more intricate plan than they're letting on, or is it honestly like hey, we're just going to try and find some hockey trades and shake up the mix of this group, but we have no intention of going, all right, we're going to tear this thing down, and then we're going to rebuild it back up. We're going to lean into, uh, you know, bad teams get high picks in the draft. This draft is going to be incredible, so maybe this is an opportunity for us. Or do you honestly think that, for example, if they are to trade Bo Horvat? They're not going to be seeking first-round picks or draft picks. They're going to honestly be looking for a hockey trade that they are somehow going to find a team that is going to go, oh, Bo Horvat a rental? We'd love Bo Horvat as a rental. And we will actually give you valuable hockey players that we are using right now. Okay, I hate saying this because it's, uh, it's not helpful in the slightest, but I have no idea. I have no idea what. Yeah, me neither. Because here's the thing. Put, just as we talk about juxtapositions again, uh, have the Alvin audio ready where he talks about his opinion of the team. This It's unbelievable. Rutherford, when he speaks publicly, has been wildly critical of this team. Wildly critical of the way that they play. Wildly critical of the coaching staff. Um you know, Alvin earlier, the only thing that has ever really raised an eyebrow that he's ever said is when he said, like, we're, we're the team that doesn't have the superstar. And we're like, oh, that's an interesting take on your team. Okay. So publicly, they have said that they are not super enamored with the whole thing, the whole group. And then Alvin goes on Hockey Night in Canada, and he's asked if his, if his opinion on this team and the group and the core and the leadership 
has changed whatsoever. And then we get this kind of word salad here. I'll play it and I'll let you guys listen to it. And then we'll come back on the other side and try and make sense of exactly what's going on here. Alvin has asked, has your opinion on the team changed at all over the last little bit? First, I, I still think we're, you know, it, as I said, it takes time to change the, the, the standard, the culture, uh, demanding more of each other. Um, and our vision stayed the same. As I said, we were trying to, to uh, add younger players here and, and continue to build. Uh, we have a lot of good, good player on the team here, on our team. And, and uh, I think we've been uh, very inconsistent uh, um, at the start of the season here. Uh, so we need to find the consistency here uh, in our game. Um, so uh, nothing, has, nothing has really changed. Nothing has really changed. My question is, what exactly did you guys think of this group beforehand then? Because the Miller extension alone does not jive or fit with anything that he just said where they're trying to bring in younger players in that sort of 25 age range, right? They've locked Miller up uh, to a contract that's going to take him well into his 30s. Mm-hmm. And the Horvat situation, as it's currently playing out, either seems to be... Uh, an acknowledgement to the former part where he said, like, we are, you know, we're inconsistent, we're trying to move things, we're trying to get younger. But if they do end up re-signing him, that's a second contract that doesn't jive with anything that they've said. So when I say I don't know what they're doing, I literally do not know what they're doing. And I've looked at this and studied it and written down notes and done the math in my yeah. head. Done it all. There's a lot of like, okay, he says this, but they did this. Or... Right. Or Alvin said this, but Rutherford said this, but Rutherford said this, and then Alvin said this. Okay. And they all seem to be inconsistent. They're like yep. the Canucks. We just have to have a little more consistency. So we're going to talk to James Sharman uh, coming up next. Very busy show. Um, we're going to be flipping back and forth to various topics. So uh, pay attention. You got to pay attention. James Sharman will talk about the World Cup. Was that the greatest soccer match ever played? I think. There's probably a Carisdell Strikers game that I was involved in, or maybe Shorty was involved in that mm-hmm. was as good. But John Catliff, may, yeah, maybe yeah, John Catliff, uh, but maybe not the stakes. Maybe they were showing the that game on TV earlier. They too. were, yeah, of uh, <laughs> of of Sunday's uh, Argentina France clash. We'll talk to James Sharman about that. We'll wrap up the World Cup, which is kind of disappointing, actually. Because now we've just got the Canucks to focus on. And we'll go into the Dunbar Lumber text line. So any uh, questions or comments, text them in to 650-650. You're listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Time now for Sportsnet 650 traffic from the City News 1130 Air Patrol. on a Monday. Happy Monday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, It is time now for the soccer report. One of the last ones we're ever going to do. Well, this week, anyway. We'll just go back to regular, not certainteed soccer reports. But this soccer report is brought to you by certainteed. The pro's choice for roofing, siding, drywall, insulation, and ceiling systems. Certainteed pro all the way. There's no better way to do a final encapsulation of a soccer report than to do it with James Sharman, Sportsnet's very own uh, footy prime as well here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, James. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Yes, doing great. Thank you. How you doing? Uh, I am well. Uh, I, for me, I can speak personally here the high has not worn off from this just in terms of what we were able to witness and I think it's because I'm still processing exactly what happened in the 2022 World Cup final from Qatar and I was following you on Twitter and I saw that you were almost in awe of the spectacle that unfolded in front of you has the high worn off for you yet I'm still kind of decompressing a bit I think you know it really was I mean we we overblow you know moments I think in sports that's kind of what we do but now and again, you know, a match does deliver and you can put it into words, but it doesn't really do it justice. And I think that's where we're at with this this match. You know, is it the greatest final of all time? Well, it's up there for sure. You know, recency bias is there, of course. But I mean, as far as 
what it delivered, you know, the narratives entering, you know, what happened to those narratives, Messi, Mbappe, um, you know, France, did they have the flu? Did they not? Um, just the quality of play from Argentina in that first half, the, the drama of extra time, penalties. I mean, I don't know what more you could have. And, and there wasn't even controversy, which is probably a good thing. Not too much controversy anyway. So I think it just had the full gamut of what we need for a, a brilliant, brilliant match, a brilliant event, a brilliant occasion. And, and it just was a great way to say goodbye to a, a troubled World Cup, I think it's fair to say, given the noise around where it was. But from a footballing standpoint, it was absolutely sensational. It was one of those matches where I was watching and I was kind of like, I'm glad I'm not supporting one of these teams because I don't <laughs> think I would have been able to personally handle this. Like, I wouldn't have been able to handle You know when you're watching games and you're like, this is no longer fun. This seems like I, I feel sick to my stomach. And that's almost what I felt like um, when they panned the crowd. And Mike and I were talking about this earlier. The match got so crazy that there were big moments that we almost just kind of glossed over whether it was Mbappe getting the PK in uh, extra time and people were like, they, they almost like couldn't believe it. Or what about the save that the Argentinian keeper made as extra time was running out? That was kind of just like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, there's another crazy moment. I guess off to penalties we go. What were your thoughts while you were watching this game? Yeah, you know, you're right, because I also didn't really have a horse in that race. I mean, I wanted to see Messi win it, but had it been France, I would have been fine with that. Yeah, I found myself late in that match feeling a little bit nauseous, you know, being very nervous, sweaty palms, you know, couldn't really sit down. Like, why am I feeling this way about two teams that I don't really care about? And it just showed what a great match it was and just the stage it was on. And you're right when you mention those moments, because I think this World Cup was a World Cup of moments. There weren't too many classic matches. There were good matches. There were some great performances. But there weren't that too many, you know, iconic mm-hmm. 90 minutes of football. So this, this final kind of encapsulated that because be it Mbappe, be it that great save by Amy Martinez, you mentioned at the end there, the Laura the Toro Martinez miss, you know, all these little moments of, of just brilliant, pure sport that just, you know, made it, made the spectacle even more important, I think, as sports fans. And, yeah, I mean, I, I felt, honestly, I felt exhausted after the match. I've been on, on the edge. The first 45 minutes, listen, you know, France were absent. They were really poor. Argentina were just dominating that match, really, for the first 70 minutes. Um, so at that point, I think, oh, well, you know, good performance, but, you know, you can almost hear the excuses from France already with the flu and the colds going through the club. Um, but then, then the 70-minute mark hit and everything changed. Right, and then the brilliant moments started popping up, and uh, it'll be a match that we never forget. You know, it'll be known as Messi's final. It'll be known as Messi's World Cup. He obviously owned the show, but I don't know. You, you leave that match, and you, you look at the image of Kylian Mbappe on that bench, just mm-hmm. devastated. And you think, how do you score a hat trick in, in the World Cup final, <laughs> add in another penalty, and not lift the trophy? I mean, my God, it's just incredible. Might have been the greatest uh, effort in a losing performance in a World Cup final ever. I think it's without question has to be. But the interesting thing, you mentioned Messi. This is his tournament. This is his show. Uh, He didn't exactly follow the script at the end because when a lot of people were assuming that that would be it for his appearances, either in an Argentinian shirt or at the World Cup, uh, he went in the exact opposite direction. So, too. Did the gaffer, Scaloni, who said, I'm keeping that number 10 shirt available for Messi for the foreseeable future. Were you surprised to hear that Messi didn't follow the script and didn't announce his retirement from the international game or from World Cups? That After winning, he kind of was of the mind that, yeah, I kind of want to do this again and get more. Yeah, I, I was a bit surprised because obviously you know, the romantic in you says, what a great time that would be for the arguably the greatest of all time to say, enough's enough, I'm done with international football and step away. But then you think about it, right? And I mean, imagine being a World Cup winner, Leo Messi, and, and imagine those matches at home in the next few months and maybe years. I mean, that's going to be fun, right? It's going to be a celebration. And I think the way he put it, I want to I enjoy being a world champion for a little while, you know, playing with this shirt on my back. And I get that. I respect that a lot. And also he's probably thinking to himself, well, you know, forget the age. Look at my performance in this World Cup. I still got a game. Right. This wasn't like a declining superstar. We, we thought he might be, but he wasn't in this tournament. So maybe he'll play the Nations League. Maybe he'll stick around to Copa America in 2024, which it can, and how great would that be? Mm-hmm. Um, and who knows, in three and a half years' time, where his game's at. 
he's such a smart player. I mean, he is evolving his game somewhat, but you can see him, you know, adjusting his play and still being a really good player in three and a half years' time. And he's to say he won't be there, you know, for the next World Cup in, in North America. And I mean, I hope it's true. Um, at the same time, you know, I mean, how great would it be just to say, you know, guys, this is my gift to you. Goodbye, farewell. You know, it's been quite the ride, but that's not going to happen. We're speaking to James Sharman, Sportsnet soccer analyst and from Footy Prime here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650, putting a bow on the 2022 uh, World Cup from Qatar. Now, it's interesting here because the narrative and the story of this tournament was really cemented with the final, right? You mentioned it. This is going to be Messi's tournament. This is going to be Messi's legacy. Everyone is going to remember this tournament for that final and the Mbappe versus Messi and then Messi coming out on top. However... When you look back on this tournament, I do think history is going to say that this might end up being the World Cup of penalties. I don't remember a tournament. I don't remember this many matches being so clearly defined by penalties. Right? Do you think? Do you think Harry Kane was like, mm, I kind of hope Mbappe <laughs> misses one of these because then then because he went three for three, right? So yeah, just run through yeah. this like with me. Like from a Canadian perspective, you had the Alfonso Davies miss against Belgium, yeah. which is forever etched. In the memories. The Harry Kane miss, which puts him in that unfortunate pantheon of England penalty misses. You have a final, you know, sorted out by penalty kicks. I didn't realize this, but Argentina received the most penalties during the run of open play ever in the World Cup. They had five over that run. You had the Croatia heroics. You had Morocco who went on that great run. That included a shootout over Spain. 41 penalties total across the tournament. So I, I look back on this and I say, yes, we're going to remember Qatar for Messi, but I think we're also going to remember it for penalties becoming, I mean, they've always been a prevalent part of the game. But this how, much a, is that of, uh, how much of that is VAR? Uh, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, I, or have we seen a, a change, a shift in, in the game now where the penalty has become almost more important than ever because of things like VAR? Yeah, well, not, not just that, but we saw some, some great saves of penalties too, didn't we? We saw Emmy Martinez... We saw uh, Wojciech Chesney save yep. two from two from the spot in this, this World Cup as well. I think VAR is a big part of it. I think referees are more quick to point to the spot knowing that they can be backed up by VAR. They can change their minds. Yeah. But I don't remember there being too much controversy either in this World Cup with the penalties. I mean, no. there's some, some tough ones, I guess, but none that you can just say were glaring errors by VAR or by the, the referee. Um, there's a one handball, I think, it, I think it's a Serbian handball early on, he was facing the wrong way. His hand went down. It's a really unfair one. That's about the only one I can think of. So it's officiated pretty well. And, you know, penalties are important. They are part of the game. And when people complain about shootouts, I get it. I mean, it's a cruel way to lose. But it's still a real skill. I know it's the individual, not the collective, which is what, you know, soccer's really about. But it takes such strong minds to, to really, you know, convert from the spot under that kind of pressure. So it is a skill. Um I, I mean, what is the secret, I mean, to, to penalties? I mean, uh, Luis Enrique said that we practice penalties all the time mm-hmm. for Spain, and guess what? They're some of the worst penalties <laughs> we saw at, at the World Cup. Others will say, nah, we don't bother. You know, we just, you know, whoever feels good at the time, take that ball like Alfonso Davis. <laughs> How did that work out? Yeah. Right? So I, I don't know what the science is behind them, but yeah, they are obviously very important. And, uh, you know, I think because of VAR, you're seeing referees far more comfortable pointing to the spot now. Uh, I also would like to add that the conversion rate at this World Cup was 63%, which is incredibly low. And that's down from like the high 70s in terms of percentage success. Uh, Not too long ago, I think it was the 2010 World Cup where it was in the neighborhood of like 75. So there's something, there's there's been a bit of a sea change. I think the goalkeeping aspect of it has gotten better. You mentioned that it's a skill. I think it's a skill from both sides right now. And I did notice that, as the tournament went along, you had fewer and fewer of the people that popped up and said, what a Mickey Mouse way to end it, because I think they realized that the shootout is no longer all about the shooters and the the impetus is to score. Obviously, it's a greater advantage to the shooter than the keeper, but I just think that the game has changed and that particular aspect of it has really changed and almost matured, and now we've got something that I'm going to be really curious to see moving forward at all these big international tournaments. Yeah, you know, I, I think teams take it way more seriously now. They, they study it. They have, you know, um, analytics for each goalkeeper, each striker, uh, whoever's striking the ball. I know Leo Messi studies goalkeepers, and we saw that, you know, how he was so patient yesterday in his penalties, waiting for the goalkeeper to move. 
Um, whereas earlier on, you know, different goalkeepers, he might just power it in. So it's really interesting. Um, there's a great book, actually, on the whole thing by Ben Littleton, who writes about penalties and the science behind it. And it's really interesting. It's just changed so much over recent years. And speaking to Craig Forrest about it, you know, about the, the mentality of a shootout. And he says, you know, it's the easiest job in the world for a goalkeeper. There's no pressure on the keeper at all. Have fun out there because no one expects you to save it, right? And when you do, even if it's a poor penalty, you're the hero. Whereas all the pressure is 100% on the ball striker. So it, there's so much to it. You know, the, the stats suggesting that the first taker has the huge advantage. So if you win that toss, you better kick first. Then we talk about, you know, where does your best players kick? Mm-hmm. We saw in this World Cup, uh, Neymar didn't get to kick, right? Yeah. He was probably number five. Whereas yesterday, Mbappe and Neymar, one and one, right? They're the first two up there. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting an interesting science is the shootout. And it's come a long way from those days where it, just, it was just considered fluke. That was the Alan Shearer recommendation was have your best player shoot first. And then, of course, both yep. both sides did it yesterday with uh, mm-hmm. Messi and Mbappe shooting first. James, uh, we have to get running here. We're up against it for time. Uh, I want to thank you for doing this throughout the entire tournament. This has been a lot of fun for us, especially since it allowed us to not talk about the Canucks for large, large periods of time. <laughs> so that was great. And uh, you were, like, fantastic. It was awesome getting you on throughout the tournament. So thanks again. We really appreciate it. Enjoy some downtime here. Uh, and then let's circle back in the new year when the domestic campaigns get back up and running. Yeah, we'd love to, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Uh, you, you ask really great questions, actually, and you don't always get those. So I really appreciate that. And, uh, hey, listen, the, the Prem starts in a, in a week from now, right? Yep. A week today, I believe it is. So uh, not much rest, but I'll, I'll be back whenever you need me. Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. Thanks, James. That's uh, James Sharman from Sportsnet and the Footy Prime podcast here on the Halford & Brough Show on Sportsnet 650. That was the soccer report brought to you by CertainTeed, the pro's choice for roofing, siding, drywall, insulation, and ceiling systems. CertainTeed Pro all the way. So the Dunbar Lumber text line right now is a mix of um, appreciation and gratitude and amazement for the World Cup final yep. that we saw on Sunday and frustration with the Vancouver Canucks. Mike, the urologist from Brockville, mm-hmm. texts in and said, I originally assumed all the big minds working in this front office would put together a great masterful plan. But since the summer, I've lost all faith in them having a plan. They've bumbled through this past year without making any dramatic moves. They've done nothing. It's brutal that we got baited into having faith in this management. So it brings us back to the question. Is the the idea that Patrick Alvin demonstrated and has demonstrated in the past and spoken of and Jim Rutherford has spoken of when he talks about pecking away at the roster. Is that a plan that can work? Or do you need something like Mike the Urologist from Brockville says? Do you need a masterful plan? And a masterful plan is not a direct line plan normally. Like if you're thinking about a plan, right? Like what do you think about a plan? To me, it's like the A-team, right? Like, we had a plan, and it was quite intricate, and, like, I don't know. We had to bring B.A. on a plane, and he hates flying. So we, we even had to plan. Had to get a plan to get B.A. Baracus on the plane. Yeah. Another timely reference for me, by the way, the A-team. Yeah. Mr. T. It was very timely. Um, I got that one. There you go. Okay. boy. But what the Canucks are saying is, like, there's no plan where we get worse and then we get better and then we then we do this and you're like, oh, I never even thought of that. Oh, that's interesting. Or we're weaponizing cap space or we're, we're, we're doing this. We're doing things like the Canucks are just going to play. They're just going to play checkers and they're just going to be like, all right, well, if this guy is there, then I'm going to hop over this guy and take his piece and they're just going to try and win some trades and they're going to get incrementally better and they're going to try and improve the culture. But there's no big, like there's no, I don't think there's going to be any, like they don't have anything in their arsenal. That's like, and this is when we have our big reveal of the plan. And you're like, Oh, that unless, unless the Canucks are tricking us and they do have the big reveal because part of a master plan is that you kind of trick everyone. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. I don't know what their plan well, is right now. I don't know if this qualifies as a plan. I don't know in a hard cap salary 
um, league if you can just have a plan of, oh, we'll just try and get better every day. No. Uh, okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Like first, so it, the, the, what's the old saying? The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. You can have a great blueprint scheme, and you could hope that it works out, but the reality is, is it might not. Mm-hmm. I think there's a little bit of that that's happened. I think they probably – look, let's, if you ask them point blank, and I'm talking about the executive, the five-person executive that Rutherford has built out. If you ask them point blank, yes or no, do you have a plan? They're all going to say to an individual, yes, yeah, of course we have a plan. Our, our plan is to – is our plan is to build – uh, to keep building, yes. and our plan is to bring in more young players. So that's the, our plan. So the real question becomes: Can your plan work? Can you execute it? And that is where we are in the weeds right now. As as people who on the outside looking in, that is where we're in the weeds. Because from the outside looking in, right now, proof of concept says whatever you guys were trying to do. You obviously were unable to do in the summer, and that was clear cap space. They made that abundantly clear. I would also say, even if you can execute your plan, will that plan result in a team that can win the Stanley Cup? Because Patrick Galvin pointed to a couple of the moves that were made that were almost an example of the plan to bring in younger players, and he mentioned Ethan Bear and Riley Stillman. Okay, you know what? Are, are, are those guys are those guys needle movers? Good point. Are those Let's, guys going to turn this Canucks team into a Stanley Cup contending team? Let's play the audio because this is another example of what we are able to parse through, what's being made available for public consumption, and what we are supposed to take from that. This is Patrick Alvin uh, on <clears throat> the young players talking about the group that is the sixth youngest going into the season. We'll put the asterisk on that one on the other side. Uh, It's a little bit of a longer clip, one of the more loquacious responses from Alvin, but this is Alvin on his young squad and how they put it together. Starting the season here, I I believe we were uh, one of the sixth youngest team uh, going into the league here, and uh, we we were aware of... uh, um, our goal, our vision here was to, to bring in uh, some youth to our, uh, to our organization. Um, we were able to, to add a couple of players here uh, as we were going on here with, with Ethan Beer and uh, Riley Stillman. Um, I think there is a lot of, of good things from our younger players in um, Stenika Aman, uh, Joshua. Um, Kosmenko has been uh, playing pretty well here too, but um, you know, definitely uh, uh, challenging for all teams uh, with UFAs and, and uh, the, mainly the flat cap here. So when I heard him say it, and you know, it almost it sounded like um, when you, you go through like your grocery list of like things you need to buy and then you purchase them and then you just read it back. You're like, well, you're not really telling me anything about what you're going to make. You just told me about the ingredients. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of impression that I got because there's no needle movers in that. If I'm I'm listening to Alvin correctly, it's find peripheral players to bring in. They get you incrementally younger, and that's fine, but it doesn't address the biggest issue, which is the core guys on the team Yeah, because – Right now, does it? Do you think they still have belief in this core? Because there are some people. There are some. There's some people in the fan base that still have belief in the core. They look at the the core and they go, "Petey's good. Hughes is good. Demko, he's struggling this season, but he can be good." Um, you I know, get, they they the like only... Horvat, uh, um, and they they'll say, you know, if they can improve their defense, then they're a good team. Now, I completely disagree. I, I, the bar is so high to win a Stanley Cup that I look at this core and I think it's going to be none of these guys that really d- d- deliver the Stanley Cup. There might be some guys that are still on the team if it happens, but I think you need more. Like I, I think the best player needs to be better than whatever the Canucks have. I think the really interesting thing in what you just said is the context, the pretext, if you will. Is that going into that game on Saturday night, Elliot Friedman went on national television and laid out as he could best figure it out based on talking to everyone and various insiders and what have you, that there was only one untouchable on this team, and that was Elias Pettersson. 
Now he add, he added, I know what everyone's going to say. Does that mean Hughes is untouchable? He then went on to say that it would take a quote-unquote mammoth offer to get him out of Vancouver. Point being, I think that they, <laughs> this is going to sound really weird, they like the core but would also be fine moving any of it out except for Pedersen. And that is a weird thing to say because it doesn't add up. If you like the core, you're going to stick with it. But if you're willing to shake things up, you don't like it that much. Are you married to this group or are you willing to go see other people? It's one or the other. And this is where we get back to the idea and notion of a plan. And sometimes I do wonder if the plan is, let's keep all our options open here and let's just see what happens as we move along. Yeah. Rutherford's thing in Pittsburgh was making hockey trades and constantly changing up the group. Now, he had a group that was led by Sidney Crosby <laughs> and Jenny Malkin, so it was easier to change the peripheral parts. It was easy to say, yeah, those guys are good enough to lead you to a Stanley Cup. Because, you know, they'd done it before. But, I mean, again, i got to give the guy credit because when they lost Chris Letang going into the playoffs, he found a way to piecemeal it together and put together a pretty good defense that won a Stanley Cup. Again, you certainly had a lot of strengths to fall back on with Crosby and Malkin and everything else. But he's been a guy that has been able to change pieces. And if that's the approach, it comes with a lot of risk. Because he's trying to do this in an environment where there's no money. Everyone's pressed against the cap. And there hasn't been any moves. Go through the last couple of years in the NHL. Well, part of the reason the Canucks have no money is because they keep spending it. Right. But <laughs> just go around the league. That's true, though, right? Yeah. Like but, it's but, pr- but, they're, but they're trying to... It almost feels like they are trying to set out on a path mm-hmm. that has been drawn up in past years that might have worked under different conditions, but they've spent poorly. The rest of the league has no money to make these moves. Like I'm, I'm sure that Rutherford would like to make a move. Uh, Besser, uh, Garland, Pearson, take your pick, right? Myers even. Probably wouldn't mind moving some of those pieces out because those are superfluous of pieces. Not. Yeah, of course they'd like to do that. But look at the financial landscape right now. And just got word of the Board of Governors meetings that it's not getting any better. The future is not getting any brighter or rosier. I mean, one of the things that this management group has said on the record, yeah, we wanted to do more stuff in the summer. We mm-hmm. wanted to move out pieces. We wanted to free up cap space. But they weren't but I able think, to. But I think the, the performance of the Canucks this season – I would have wondered that if it might might change their minds about what they're working with. That's all. Because it's just been dreadful performance after dreadful performance, especially at home. And I and I was a little bit surprised that maybe there hasn't been some sort of like, this is unacceptable and this has to change. More of a that sort of message from Patrick Alvin as mm-hmm. opposed to been like, we've been really inconsistent. You're listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Mike Tannier is going to join us. Talk a little NFL, crazy finish between the Patriots and the Raiders, a bunch of other storylines to follow, and then we'll get back into the Canucks talk. So any questions or comments you have for the Dunbar Lumber text line, please text them in at 650-650. We'll also talk to IMAC at 8 o'clock. And I'm going to ask IMAC, IMAC, do you think that they should rebuild? Were you surprised at, what do you think, do you think the Canucks have a plan? And is that plan good enough? You're listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.